The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to On the Farm Pitcher List podcast about all things prospect, dynasty, and minor league related. I am your host, Lamar Gibson. And I am your host, Jake Mish. And today we're going to be discussing uh, the dynasty team's series of prospect rankings that we did position by position. Uh, just going to be looking at uh, the two articles that Jake and I did uh, covering the middle infield. So Jake did shortstops, I did second base. And then we're also going to kind of go around the horn looking at the other um, articles written by the rest of the dynasty team and just giving our perspective on some of the players that were ranked, whether we agree with the rankings, whether may- maybe we disagree and why. But before we get into that topic, anything out there uh, from this past week's spring training games that stood out to you, Jake? Um, I think that the biggest thing that everyone's talking about right now is probably Jordan Walker. Um, and he is giving a lot of vibes of like Julio last year, right? Mm-hmm. The guy that's just gonna absolutely blow through the you know spring training and win a job. Um, I saw a tweet from I think Rob Silver, and he was like, "If if it comes out like you know in the next like week or so or whatever, like that um, Walker has a job, like a starting job on the roster, how high do you think he'll be drafted? Like, mm-hmm. do you think he even like goes outside of the top like 70, 80? Probably right. not. And it's like that's that's very much a possibility now. Um, and I've kind of been on the hesitant side with Walker getting a job and, um, you know, cause the Cardinals are so deep offensively. Um, but like that possibility has always been there that he's just going to hit his way onto it, you know, mm-hmm. like with how hard he hits the ball with how good he is. It's, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. He kind of gave us that taste in, in the Arizona fall league. Um, and so I think that, yeah, he definitely could win the job. I'm still, you know, it's, it's spring training and like, you know, that the level of competition isn't quite the same, but um, he's played for them. He's led off for them. Um, he's been in the lineup, I think, just about every game. And um, it looks, seems like the Cardinals are really, uh, really invested in him. So, so I think it might be a runaway train. So let me ask you this. Who's getting voted off the island? I think uh, probably the most sensible one right now is Dylan Carlson. Because um, like... I think they could only give him so many times because it's he's had twelve hundred plate appearances roughly in the mm-hmm. majors at twelve twenty six, and 
he hasn't really, you know, hasn't really done a whole lot. He barely has a weighted runs created plus above 100. It's at 103 for those 1,200 play appearances. And, like, you, his defense can only take him so far with the lofty expectations they had for him and with the options they have behind him. Like, I don't see how he's just going to be given a long leash in his fourth major league season. Um, so I think Dylan Carlson's the odd one out probably for me. Um, but then also looking at like Juan Yepes is slated to DH right now. And I think that um, I, I like him, I think more than Carlson. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it's Carlson. How about you? I, I actually think it's Yepes, even though he is slated to be the DH, I think again, that depth and, and also thinking about how the lineup is constructed. So I think Carlson being able to, to um, uh, be a left-handed bat for them uh, along, obviously. So we know O'Neill is good. We know that Newt Bar seems to be safe, right? So yeah. I think Carlson, both with the defense along with um, being able to be a lefty bat for them, helps keep their lineup a bit more balanced, which I think is something that they want to have. Um, you have Gorman, who still also could be getting voted off the island you know, possibly, but he's a lefty bat. Um, Donovan's a lefty bat, and we know Donovan just kind of floats all over the place, even though he doesn't have much much pop, or maybe he does. I don't know. He's hitting. Right. He's hitting. I was making a joke that, like, Donovan needs to save some of these home runs because he's, he's hit, like, almost his, his whole total already yeah. in spring yeah. training. He needs to save uh-huh. him. But, you know, they, they have some, some other lefty bats that I'm sure that they would ideally want to keep in the lineup, and I think Carlson might be one of them. And so you look at, like, right-handed power bat, that really can only play first in DH. Um, I don't know if Yepes continues to be that appealing. And then I don't have it up in front of me. I don't know if you do, Jake, but mm-hmm. looking at just the number of options, I feel like Yepes, because yeah. he just came up, I feel like he has more options to get sent back down to he AAA. Has, he has two. Carlson has three. Oh, okay. Well, so there's one more there. So you could be right. And it seems like, I'm seeing many say that it's Carlson right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I But I I do think that the defense is something that can't be, especially for an organization like St. Louis, who we know mm-hmm. like tends to, to pride themselves in having, you know, pretty do we know, do we know how good Walker is on defense in the outfield? I, I mean, he had to learn it. Uh, yeah. He's athletic, I mean, though. he's fast. He, he's, he's athletic. And once they started converting him in the minors last year, I mean, he showed out, he made some phenomenal throws from center field. Gunning yeah, some guys down. So like yeah. he has the ability. It's just a question of, with everything else that you're going to be putting in front of them, do you also want to be saying, hey, you're converting from third base to being a full-time center fielder at the major league level along with being a major league hitter? Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, go well, after He'd probably be in a corner. He'd probably be in a corner. I think, right. they, I think O'Neal's in center. Right. And then yeah, it's like, still. do you want O'Neal to be in center? Do you want Newbar to be in center? Look how, like, that went for Andrew Vaughn, you know? Exactly. Like, Andrew Vaughn's not as athletic as, as Walker, you know? Um, but also, so, like, if they have – if they have an, another thing that I'm thinking with the Apez is like, so if they have Carlson in the lineup, they have like Edmund probably at the top, at least to start. I like Newt Bar better there because Edmund's OBP is bad. I don't know why. <laughs> Just because he's fast. I, I, I hate that idea. If you're fast, you lead off. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so if, they, if you have Edmund at the top ish um, and then you have Donovan at the bottom ish um, and then Carlson somewhere kind of like middle to bottom, that's like mm-hmm. three of your nine bats that like, don't have a lot of pop um, and don't have like a lot of just like run generating ability. Um, And Donovan's not super fast. Um, 
and you know, even Carlson's not like a, a burner. You know, at least Edmund is like he could steal bases. He could like make a difference on the base paths. But like, but I again, feel like that's. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, new rules. New rules. Who this? I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe that unlocks something for maybe not necessarily Donovan, but maybe for Carlson, right? Yeah, some new yeah. Maybe they start to say, "Hey, let's test out some stuff." I don't. I, I mean, there's nothing to show that in the data, so this is pure speculation. But yeah. I, I don't. I don't disagree with you. Uh, as far I don't disagree with the logic. Like I, I definitely see this the narrative where Carlson ends up in AAA, if not to start the season shortly after. Um, he has but, a decent yeah. approach. He takes he takes some good amount of walks. I mean, uh, he has a career three twenty three on base. Mm-hmm. Carlson does it's not bad. If he starts taking off a little bit more, uh, what's I don't have I'm trying to pull up like this like out above average maybe because um, I don't know that off the top of my head. But yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Like I think so. One thing that surprised me about Yepes is that he had like an eighty eight percent zone contact rate last year uh, in the majors. Like not a super high sample size, but. Uh, he also carried ISOs in AAA and AA like near 300. Mm-hmm. Um, he hasn't quite, he like barreled the ball, I think about like 9% of the time in the majors last year. His average exit velocity, average exit velocity was oddly horrible. Um, so I think it was like, there's a potential to be like a good, like good contact ability, low strikeout rates, which he's, he's carried pretty consistently uh, with some decent pop. Um, but just, yeah, like the, the, there isn't any defensive versatility there or value. It's kind of like DH or bust, I right. think. Uh, cause like and you have again, Goldschmidt and, and there's no room for that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the thing, right? Goldschmidt is what going to be in his year 35 season, right? Yeah, sounds right. 36, yeah. maybe. Uh, I think 35. 35. I think last I was year was, I 34. Think was 34. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you want to give him some off days. So you put him at DH, um, Arenado, you want his defense all the mm-hmm. time, right? Mm-hmm. But it probably he he's on the other side of thirty. Probably doesn't hurt to give him some off days as well, or at least some days where he's not in the field. So you want to keep that DA, and that's the thing with especially with a franchise like St. Louis, that flexibility. It's kind of similar to the Dodgers, they and and to Tampa Bay. Those are kind of like three franchises that really pride themselves on having mix and match pieces, guys that can play two or three positions with no real strain so that right. they can flex people around, give some now for Tampa, obviously there's cost cutting reasons as well, but like, yeah. you know, like even yeah. for St. Louis and, and, and the Dodgers, like flex guys around, give some off yeah. days. Um, I mean, that's what they did last year. Yeah. Uh, the Cardinals, like they had like, I know Brendan Donovan came up and he was like playing a whole lot. And then yeah. it wasn't like a month where they almost didn't play him at all. Um, never really got any news about that if there was an injury or anything, but, and then down the stretch, they played them every day again. Right. Um, and they, I think they missed, they mixed and match a lot. And I feel like that's probably the most likely solution there is that it's going to be a little bit of everything, um, at least to start and then see who kind of like breaks away from the pack, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, the one thing you know about the Cardinals is that they're not going to run out of options. There's always going to be someone to come up uh, on offense. So, um, yeah, that'll be an interesting situation. But I think, yeah, Walker's going to have to kind of get his way in there uh, at some point. So the other, um, I guess, uh, little footnote that we have here is, uh, and this is this has been an ongoing conversation in another sort of Discord server that I'm in, um, but talking about the Reds, so keeping it in the NL Central, talking about the Reds and uh, Spencer Steer versus Christian Encarnacion Strand and 
you know, who's going to kind of win that position for first slash third slash DH, kind of similar to Yepes, actually. Um, and so far, I mean, I, um, I have Steer rostered, right? So I'm obviously pulling for him. But the data right now is on the side of Strand. Um, he's 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 killing everything, and Steer is is not looking, you know, not looking too good. I think that continues to be a position battle to watch just because for me, not only is it the, you know, the, the bit of skin that I have in the game from a fantasy standpoint, but I think it would be interesting to see what happens and what that means for the Reds as an organization, right? Like, are they willing to kind of do what the better teams that try to rebuild do, which is like, Hey, we don't really care about, um, it's not always about like, uh, positional fit or kind of what you know what looks nice or what worked for not even worked for us but what we had going last year because like steer obviously made his major league debut last year he was already there they traded for him right from minnesota to bring him on board that was that was part of the um molly deal so like there obviously was some interest in in getting him to the reds um i think the power was part of that and that still hasn't completely shown as of yet, not consistently, but it's like, if you have a guy in, in, in strand, you know, why not give him a shot? And the, again, the problem here is they both overlap as far as neither one of them are very good defensively at many of any positions. I think for steer, the only appeal is like, he's not a complete defensive zero anywhere, even though he's not additive anywhere. So they kind of were able to move him around in that small sample size at the major league level of like, well, he's not the worst second baseman, but we don't ideally want him to be our everyday starting second baseman, but he'll get some starts there. He's not the worst first baseman, but he's not ideally who we want to be our everyday first baseman, but we'll give him some starts there. We really don't want him at third, but worst comes to worst, we'll put him there and he'll get some starts there. Um, They haven't done the same thing for Strand, obviously, but it's, 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 it's very similar and he might just hit his way on the team and steer could find himself, uh, you know, getting uh, usurped if you will, uh, very quickly. Um, I hope it doesn't happen obviously. Cause like I said, I haven't rostered, but I, I got to admit the the talent is showing up for strand in a way that is, that's not for steer right now. Yeah. And I think, you know, the thing about third base for the reds is that it's probably going to belong to Noel V Marte at some point. Uh, you know, if, if Ellie's at short, they move Marte over the third. Marte played a little bit more third last year in the AFL. Um, and uh, we'll see if he keeps playing third this year. I think that'll give us the, you know, the final uh, um, insight there about what they're planning to do if he continues to play there. Um, but yeah, if you have Elliot short and Marte at third, probably India at second, and mm-hmm. then maybe Encarnacion Strand or Steer at first, you know, um, I don't know if they're really gonna like commit to one of these guys at third base if they have Ellie and Noelvi right. on the left side, you right, know. Right, right. Um, and then so then you're talking about you need someone who's going to be better than, or at least like on poor on power with the average first baseman, which is mm-hmm. a lot higher offensive floor. You know, I think the average you know WRC plus for first baseman is like 110, 112, um, and so looking at like the kind of profiles here, like steer is like shown surprisingly little power Um, in his like 108 plate appearances last year. He carried below average marks and average exit velocity, max exit velocity, barrel rate and hard hit rate. Um, And he's shown actually better contact skills 
uh, with an 85% zone contact and an 8.6% swinging strike rate, you know? So it's like steers kind of become more of like a contact guy right. that can hit a bunch of fly balls and like lift some out of great American ballpark, you know, but like, that's not exactly the profile you want for your first baseman if that's where they have to go at some point. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think steer probably has the short track, short term track to the job at third base to start this year. And he'll have to like really show some development in the power area, I think, to stay or at least give himself a shot. Uh, but I think long term, it looks more like Encarnacion Strand at first, who does offer that power, um, I think, more right now. Um, but I, then again, Steers showed similar power numbers at the lower, lower right. levels of the minors that like right. Encarnacion Strand is, you know, right. so it's like and it could end up being the same type of thing. Right. And that was the appeal when he was with Minnesota. It was like, right. oh, this guy is, is kind of doing similar to what, what Strand had been doing. Um, so, yeah, it, it very, very interesting uh, to watch. Uh, one other name, just while we're talking about kind of the Reds infield in general, uh, and I, I don't, I'm not big on this guy, but I think it'll be curious to see if he can turn the corner, and that's Matt McClain, um, who was kind of like the fourth name in that shortstop class from a couple of years ago where it was like Meyer, Watson, Lawler, and then McClain was kind of like fourth or fifth um, rung or, or, or in that order. Um, has had continuous trouble as far as contact and, and strikeout numbers, but has started to show um some some of the pop that he you know was kind of expected to have. Uh, again, I don't think that he's I definitely don't think he's pulling some pushing somebody like Marte or Dela Cruz out of a job, but he just he gets added to that mix of hey you know here's somebody that is young. Um, has developed at some point in time he's going to be in that double a triple a space of he's 20 you know going to be 23 i think this year he's going to start to age into that space where it's like are are you going to trade him are you going to give him a shot like what are you going to do with him uh so he's just one other name to kind of add to that general mix uh so it's interesting to see you know the reds kind of uh sneakily having a collection of of folks in the infield that all have something of interest to to keep an eye on, right? It's actually funny their their rookie of the year, Jonathan India, might be the most boring of all the prospects as far as skill set, right? But he he's his thing is he's going to be consistent, right? You kind of know what you're going to get with him, uh, both in real life but also from a fantasy standpoint. So, so that's kind of what we've seen thus far that stuck out to us um, from this past week of spring training. Um, what we'll do is we're going to take the quick break come back we're going to talk through our individual articles that we did for um positional breakdown so i'll talk through uh second base jake will talk through shortstop uh and that'll be after this break so we're back and like i said what we're going to do is talk through our articles um and maybe go a little bit deeper than even what we wrote about um and just get each other's opinion as well seeing how this is the first time that we've been able to kind of talk uh, in person since the article has been published. Uh, I'll go first with the second base articles. And and the biggest thing, and I think has been well sort of noted, is second base from a prospect standpoint, especially very thin. Um, I want to say, and I should know this, but uh, I don't off the top of my head, but I want to say three of the top 10 weren't actually even rated in our top 100. So, like, kind of filling in the back end, um, we actually kind of did an impromptu sort of 
digging around personal rankings to fill out the rest of the top 10 to second base because there wasn't enough to pull from that um, original top 100 list. And that just kind of speaks to where the talent is in other positions versus uh, second base. The first guy that I did want to talk to, and he's been uh, talking about people that have been making an impact in spring training. Um, this guy's definitely up there along with the incarnational strands of the world. And that's uh, Edward Julian uh, of the Minnesota twins. Number four on uh, the top second baseman article, number 67 overall, as far as top 100 prospects uh, for pitcher list consensus rankings. And just given the the line real quick in his 2022 at double A in 400 at bats, 300, 441, 490 is the triple slash, 17 homers, 19 stolen bases, 77 run scores, 67 RBI. And my thing about Julian that I wrote to is it's not so much that he's even the flashiest name that you can find on this list, uh, on this list, but just looking at that stat line, what he brings in and what he's been doing in spring training uh, this year as well, he just brings a little bit of everything. So if you're looking for, from a fantasy standpoint, if you're looking for young, you know, if you have a, a middle infield position uh, in, in your roster, so not necessarily your starting second baseman, but you're looking for a middle infield guy or you're looking for um, potentially a, a first bat off the bench and you're looking for a younger name or somebody maybe you're not having to pay as much of a premium for, he's that type of person where you can say, hey, if I pluck him in where I think he's going to have some favorable matchups, he could give me a home, you know, a couple homers in a week could give me a couple stolen bases depending on where he bats he could be a run scorer or run creator of some sort or he could be dropping them in so he can kind of just be additive in pretty much every category that you have in most fantasy leagues um and so to me that's just generally uh generally appealing i think the hit tool in of itself even though he has that great triple slash at the double a level i think when you look underneath of that contact rates haven't gotten into the 70 percent or 70 percent range yet so there's still some you know some general concerns about uh, or questions i would say about how well he's going to hit at the major league level over a full season or over you know a, a larger sample but when we think about path to playing time you know array is obviously gone uh nick gordon now is hurt you still have uh, Polanco as uh, looking like their everyday second baseman from like roster resource and the like. But uh, I think Julian, I, I kind of compared him to Jose Miranda as far as they both are in a position where they just kind of push their way again. They just kind of push their way into the twins having to make some sort of space for them, even if it's not an obvious fit or an easy fit. It's just you, you can't let that talent kind of um, wither on the vine. And Miranda did that from 20. 21 going into 2022 i think uh julian is, is very similar uh jake i don't know if you had you know uh, additional thoughts on that or not yeah i think uh julian like you said like you know contributing across the board and i think uh he is the one thing for for batting average he carries like a crazy high line drive rate in double a last year it was 30 it's just over 30 it's 31.3 percent line drive rate in double a in 2022 in like 500 plate appearances um so like that's obviously working in his favor um if he uh can keep doing that even 
at like a 27, 28%. That'll kind of boost the batting average and BABIP a little bit, you know, um, doesn't hit like a, he's been up and down with his fly ball rate and the ground ball rate isn't too bad either. So like, you know, if he is an optimal launch angle um, and he has insane plate discipline um, to, you know, to take advantage of as well, um, if he brings that with him up. So, like, I think that it's a really solid profile all around. He reminds me of, like, your kind of stereotypical second baseman, you know, like hit liners in the gaps and um, good, like, doubles power, puts them over the fence here and there, you know, uh, good line drive hitter. Like, I think he's, um, and he's going to be able to chip in, in in speed too, you know. So, um, yeah, I think he's going to be, like, a good, he doesn't have, like, a crazy high ceiling, but also he has a pretty solid floor, you know. Yeah, and, and even thinking about it, uh, real quick, I, I, again, I know we don't talk too much redraft here, but um, I know, Jake, you and I were talking about being in uh, TGFBI and being in the midst of our draft. And this type of guy that, am I using a draft spot for him at the end of the draft? Maybe not. But is he somebody that I have his name circled for, like, very early in that fab run? You're going to be ready, yes. yeah. Yeah, because if he comes up and he shows any of this, uh, yeah, the fab is going to go crazy on on trying to pick somebody like that up in a, in a redraft. So redraft folk, if you're listening um, or if you're, you're a dynasty person, but, you know, you're in a couple of redrafts, like keep that in mind. Not necessarily saying you got to go out and grab them right now in those uh, redraft leagues, but you definitely want to have them at the top of that watch list or, or whatever you have to keep an eye on. Because if he um, and, and it seems likely, I think at this point, if he starts the season in the minors um most likely at triple a i don't think they have the need to for him to repeat double a but most likely at triple a um he's already on the 40 man so obviously don't have to worry about that um the path is right there and if there's another injury like we so uh, again nick gordon is is injured um i i'm not sure i hadn't kept a full eye on like what the extent of the injury is how long they're anticipating him be out but that takes away some of that depth and flexibility that they had defensively um to 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 move people around and you know Polanco's nice Polanco's always been you know rather consistent but you know if he gets off to a slow start I don't I, it seems like the twins still feel like they're contenders so they don't want to take a complete zero at any position they're going to look to try to get some sort of you know juice somewhere again I would just keep Julian's name you know high and and just be ready to jump on him uh really quickly yeah, and depending on when he comes up, he could be kind of like a, a little bit under the radar because like there's going to be a lot of top prospects that everyone's going to be blowing a ton of money on, yep. like in the kind of first half of the season. Yep. And if he comes up at around the same time as, I don't know, maybe like Ellie De La Cruz or Anthony Volpe, you're mm-hmm. going to have a bunch of guys overspending on those guys. And maybe you can kind of sneak in on the back end with with Julian. Um, and that's a pretty specific scenario, but like he's not um, doesn't have quite the hype as some of the other guys that will be coming up. Um okay. And that's actually a really good point. The timing of, of when he potentially gets promoted with all the other top prospects that we're expecting to see. Um, yeah. If he gets coupled along where he's kind of in a, in a wave of two or three what better known prospects, um, higher value prospects, then yeah, that could be a situation where you might be able to slip, uh, slip somebody, slip him under the, the radar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so secondly, towards the, the, lower uh, part of the list we had Michael Bush who shows up number six on the list number 90 overall for the top 100 and then Justin Foscue number eight not ranked actually 
Um, so one of those not ranked folks in the top 100. And uh, just looking at both of them kind of comparatively, both of them uh, did well at double A. Uh, Bush is, is at was able to finish the season at triple A as well. So uh, just a step ahead, but starting again to get into that age where kind of things need to be happening. Either they need to get, you know, push themselves into being ready for their current major league team, or it's possible that they find themselves on the trading block going elsewhere as part of a deal as, as those teams look to get better. Um, If they're not, you know, uh, if those front offices don't see a, a space for them, but Bush is 24, Foskey's 23. Um, my thing with looking at Bush is the the power has always been a part of his game. We've always known that that he's been able to go deep. He hit 32 home runs combined between Double A and Triple A, um, and and 500 plus at bats. So that's never been a question. Uh, what has been a question is quality contact, um, and being able to stay disciplined enough to to reach that. Uh, power and OBP potential at the major league level. So looking at his stats, 274, 365, 516, again, combined between double and triple A, that looks really nice. Some of that potentially inflated triple A Dodgers team, the Oklahoma City Dodgers are in the PCL. So there's potential for some run inflation there. But generally speaking, that's really nice. But when you look at some underlying numbers and just his, his track record as well, strikeouts have been an issue just general quality contact when it comes to um you know how many fly balls versus ground balls he's hitting those are things that have continued to be a bugaboo uh, bugaboo for bush and i think for me i'm not uh even at second base even at how thin it is i'm not completely sold at needing to go out and grab him and it's funny because um what i was telling jake off mike was I kind of anticipated Foscue to be very similar. And, and the person I was comparing him to also former Ranger second baseman was Nick Solak. Just thinking about a guy that like, you know, he, he can pop some home runs, but n- nothing really special. And then I having written the article and, and looked at his numbers, definitely hit a lot better than I had anticipated. And I expected, I, I think for him, it's a matter of can Foscue re- repeat that in 2022? Cause it definitely looked like he turned a corner the 2021 and 2019 those years um just it didn't look like uh, especially 2021 it didn't look like he had that uh, in him uh I, again a lot of strikeouts a lot of poor quality and then something changed in 2022 where it essentially is a 180 so can he continue that piece if he does then my other question is for Foscu is there more power that's in the bat so he hit 15 home runs can we get into 20 you know 20 ish even if he can get to the major league level and be a 20, let's say 23 home run guy somewhere in that range, that plays, especially if he can keep that sort of quality up, 288 average, 367 OBP. If he can get anywhere within, what, 15, 20 points of that, right? That works along with major home runs. If not, and he is more in that high teens range, 15 to 18 home runs, then to me, he's more of that, second third tier second baseman profile again guys nice to have he'll plug a hole in for you um but not necessarily somebody i need especially thinking about him as a prospect not somebody i need to go out and add if i'm in a redraft not somebody that i'm prioritizing um but just sort of hey i'm looking around i need a bat i need somebody to fill in middle infield second base fossil's out on the wire 
yeah, I can go and grab him. So that's Bush versus Foscue. Neither of them are the sexiest names, but I think this year will definitely bring the opportunity for them to to show is there another level? And if if so, I think that 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 jumps them up because of how thin second base is. If not, then I think you know you kind of have to take them for you know kind of what's on the boxes is what you're going to get and, and value them accordingly. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I like Foscue. I think um, I think he looks better than Bush for me right now. I think I'd agree with that. Uh, and I think defensively too, right? Like yeah. Bush isn't really the best. Even that second is not like the best defensive player and i think there's some questions reminds me more of like max muncie so yeah it's like question like does he get moved to a first base and and so and and then that brings on the question that you were talking about before jacob like now you have to really hit really well if you're at first so uh, all those things um justin foskey right now seems to be able to kind of uh, preclude a little bit better for you yeah and he he cut his strikeout rate almost in half and didn't really lose a ton of power if anything i think he got more powerful because yeah, it was 26.7% across 254 plate appearances in 2021 in high-end AA. And then in AA, he had 460 plate appearances with a 14.3% strikeout rate. So, I mean, talk about an insane growth there And as far as like the contact perspective. And he also walked a little bit more too. Um, and so he, and in, in those, in 100 plate appearances in AA, he had two homers and then in 2022 and 460 he had 15 so he increased his power and output at double a and halved the strikeout rate so um, if he could take another step forward he's already shown us he could make the adjustment and make a huge step forward if he could take another step forward like in the power like you said um yeah i think he's going to be a really good one um it's just kind of like maybe where's the opportunity going to be you know they have semi in there they signed him to a a huge deal that they probably shouldn't have made (laughs) um and so like you know where's he going to put in yeah, they have they have him. They got uh, Young, obviously at third. They have Durant, kind of still floating out there. There's a uh, a couple of um of outfield prospects from the at, at the corners. I think um, Harris, Dustin Harris is 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 a guy. So yeah, it does become kind of like where exactly does he fit um, from a roster construction? But as we've been saying, if he hits his way on. Um, if if the Rangers are smart, at least they'll they'll figure it out and they'll they'll force them in. So, yeah. So th- so those are my two as far as um or three I guess technically from my second base, um top second base article. Jake, you have a couple of folks here from your top shortstops. Yeah. So I think I wanted to talk a little bit more about Anthony Volpe. Um, I haven't really talked about him a whole lot. Um. And him, he's been showing out at, at uh, spring training. I think a lot of Yankee fans I've seen on Twitter want him to make the team out of camp. And I think the general kind of consensus is there's no way the Yankees are going to do it. They don't like us that much, you know. Um, and so, you know, there's an interesting competition there at, at shortstop right now um, with Isaiah Kiner-Falefa being the warm body that has been in the majors for longer um, that is, does has, swings a wet noodle for a bat. And then you have um, Oswald Peraza, who is a really interesting name and really interesting profile. He hasn't really kind of like come out of the gate as hot as Volpe, so he isn't getting, I think, as much attention right now. But he had a really good season in the minors in, in 2022 and stole a ton of bases. Um, and so I think he might get the first shot at it um, and then Volpe kind of coming up a little later. But the point I wanted to kind of explore here with Volpe is that 
I think there's a case to be made for him to be the number one shortstop ahead of Ellie De La Cruz. Um, make make the case. Make the case. You're making a lot <laughs> it, of people it, mad right now. Make the case. I, I know. I think it comes there. I think when I looked at their numbers in Double A, they were a lot more similar than I expected. Um, and so Volpe at Double A in his age 21 season had just under 500 plate appearances, 18 homers, 44 stolen bases. Um, and I'll actually I'll do it like this. Um, instead of just giving you the whole line, I'll compare directly. So 18 homers and 44 stolen bases for Volpe and Ellie De La Cruz, age 20 season at Double A had eight homers and 19 stolen bases um, in 207 plate appearances. So then if we extrapolate that, it's you're looking at a really similar number. They're at about um, the same pace for homers and stolen bases. Uh, walk rate is Volpe at 11.5%, Ellie De La Cruz at 7.8%. Uh, and then the strikeout rate is like the huge kind of factor here um, because I think that what kind of determines the the bust potential. I hate kind of putting it all on that because I'm, I'm I've said it before I'm someone who likes to kind of look at play to plate discipline as a whole and taking the walk rate in consideration and don't just like completely cast guys off because of the strikeout rate but Volpe had a 17.7 percent strikeout rate at double a and Ellie was 30.7 percent um, and then you know it's it's tough because if you look then um, and compare Vol- um, Ellie de la Cruz I like to compare them to O'Neill Cruz. They're very similar profiles, very similar builds. Um, they hit the ball very hard. Um, you know, the um, O'Neill is not a switch hitter and has that like difficulty against lefties. But like, um, I had a note here in the article I wrote for the Reds' top prospects that um, O'Neill Cruz never carried a strikeout rate north of thirty percent at any level in the minor leagues where he had at least sixty-five plate appearances, and Ellie De La Cruz has not carried a strikeout rate lower than 30% at any of his levels. And the biggest thing that we're talking about right now with O'Neill Cruz is that he strikes out too much. Is he going to be able to hit enough? Is his batting average just going to tank? Um, it doesn't matter how hard he hits the ball if he doesn't hit it often enough, you know? And so if you're looking at Ellie, who has like worse strikeout problems in the minors, then they go to the majors, like a 30% K rate in the minors. Like, is he going to strike out 35, 36% when he first gets right. there? Right. You know, he could get better. I don't doubt that at all. He's a really talented hitter. But you look at Volpe, that's not a barrier he has to overcome. He probably doesn't hit the ball as hard as Ellie, but he has more of a well-rounded profile. Um, And they have decent, like, power out, similar power outputs. Um, They put similar ISO numbers up in the minors as well in AA. And um, Ellie also saw a 420 BABIP. Uh, I was going to say, I was looking at this. I was looking at, at, at the notes that you have here, and I'm looking at that 420 and that's like another red flag right alongside the the, the thirty essentially thirty one percent K rate. And then I'm looking at Volpe. I know he got off to a really slow start um, in twenty twenty two before he kind of caught fire. And uh, I think as a result, you look at the batting average two fifty one. You look at his BABIP two seventy two, and he still put up a one twenty two WRC plus at the at the end of things. So imagine if he had actually had uh, I I don't want to say a well I I know there was a, a bit of an injury there too but like a healthier and um just a a more consistent uh season throughout from from April all the way through those numbers are probably looking at you know close closer to a three hundred batting average and definitely three hundred plus um BABIP as well so uh that's an interesting case I think I, I will say t- to 
to be on the side of Reds fans that are yelling at you. Um, I have, I am a Reds fan. I live. In I, I know, but I, I was going to say, I think, I think with you leaving Ohio, I think that's what it is, right? You're leaving Ohio, oh, and fair, yeah. just leaving it, leaving it all behind. No, but in all honesty, I, I will say on the side of Dela Cruz, um, I think the that talent, right? That's talking about similar to O'Neill Cruz, right? That that kind of very rare ability and how hard he can hit. Uh, I think most people are like, there's something there that might be able to sort of transcend some of these other potential red flags. And who, I mean, it's the same question that, like you said, we're asking what Ono Cruz at the major league level, like when he does hit the ball, he still hits it incredibly hard. And so what does that do? And and ha- we really don't have, but too many people comparable when you think about the Stantons and the judges and whatnot of the world that hit the ball that hard to be able to, to, to compare and, and see what does that do as a player, even if maybe you are a little bit overly aggressive or you don't have mm-hmm. the best they, approach? They strike out. The you know, Judge and Stanton, um, Buxton, like they strike out a fair amount. But I think that you kind of have to keep it under like twenty eight. You know, yeah, sit around like twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven. I think you get away with that when you hit thirty and north of that. It's really tough. Right. Um, like we want. Like I know their profiles aren't very similar, but like Miguel Sano, like Fran Mil Reyes. Um, do I think we'll bring them up again later? Yeah. But, um, you know, it's like you hit the, you could hit the ball as hard as as anyone, um, but you can't make consistent contact. And Ellie also has the speed; he could beat out grounders. You know, he could like contribute so many facets. He's a shortstop and he plays it well. So, um, you know, but it's like hitting the ball hard. I am I am the biggest proponent of hitting the ball hard. I use barrel rate probably more um, than most stats offensively and hard hit rate and things like that. Um, but uh, this is uh, this is very out of character for me, but it is a proceed. I'm proceeding with caution. I'm not necessarily like targeting him or going out um, of my way to get him or anything like that because I feel like it could be slow. Maybe it just takes longer. Maybe that's the other. You know, like it could just take longer for yeah. him to adjust. Yeah, yeah. So the one last piece I want to add about Volpe before we jump into your next uh, shortstop is um, had this conversation also uh, online where there was conversation about, oh, Volpe is now starting to get projected more as second baseman. And so there was a question about like, well, why is that the case? How much stock do we put into that? That brings up the whole Glaber Torres sort of of it all, you know, that question mark for the Yankees. What are they going to do with him? What's going on with him, et cetera. And so just, just to kind of address that or talk that through um, for listeners, you know, the thing with Volpe, I think that's starting to be harped on is, arm strength is there so he has the arm strength to be able to play shortstop but when you consider shortstop from a defensive standpoint there's a couple of of different things that you have to keep in mind which is um it's arm strength plus your range plus that arm accuracy you're throwing from a multitude of different platforms even just as a league replacement level uh shortstop let alone good let alone great shortstops so being able to cover that ground um, make those throws and make those throws accurately on a consistent basis. I think that's starting to be the question for Volpe. Um, one of the side pieces of that conversation came up was like, okay, well, why not just the move to third? And I think for somebody like uh, Volpe, when you think about guys that get moved off a of short to third, it tends to be um, mostly size-wise right there, a little bit uh, bigger guy, 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, I'm thinking about Colson Montgomery. That tends to be a question Manny Machado. in his profile. Obviously, Manny Machado is one of the more recent ones at the major league level. Um, 
So guys that are, are a bit larger. And so, again, they have the arm strength, they have the accuracy, but you start to wonder um, over time, does that frame get in the way of their range? So then, hey, at third, range is less of a conversation there. It's really, can you cover the backhand down the line? And then can you move at least enough to the left so that, you know, the shortstop doesn't have to cover all of that for you? Um, and so I think for Volpe, it's, it's probably making that move to second is actually a, a bit easier because he doesn't have the size concerns. Um, so that's just an interesting extra wrinkle to the whole question of the Yankees infield, what's going on with Volpe, what's going on with Peraza? Are they really going to try to win a World Series with Isaiah Kiner for Leffa as the um, you know starting shortstop uh, over time? Uh, and, and again, like Gleyber Torres, what's going on with him? Gleyber Torres, excuse me, um, what's going on? With him, so um, that's an interesting case though that you're making about Volpe and Dela Cruz. That, yeah, uh, they're, I, they're at different points. Yeah, in their in their development, right? I think Volpe is a little bit ahead because he did reach AAA for about 100 plate appearances last year, and um, you know, so they're at different points. But like when you like when I just looked at AA where they were both at, um, and they're at like a different age, but they're nine months at and Volpe is nine months older than um, Dela Cruz, so it's like really similar, right? They both had very similar um outputs you know at the same level and um yeah to be determined because you know ellie hasn't gotten above double a volpe got to triple a and it was really bad um he lost a lot of those um gains that he had made at, at you know uh, plate discipline so um I, you know i'm not too concerned with it because it's you know it's triple a he was 21 um he's playing really well now um and i think that he'll be fine but you know i think it'll be interesting to see when they come up uh, who, you know, who might have that better, the better uh, adjustment out of the, out of the gate. I think, I think it could end up being one of those situations where it, when we look over like that, that like baseball reference sort of like seven year peak sort of thing, it's like Dela Cruz could probably have some like tremendous highs, but then there's, there's possibility that he's going to have some years where you're like, Ooh, that mm-hmm. kind of hurt me. Uh, what if his worst, uh, what if, what if his his career arc looks like Javi Baez? Boom! There you go, there you go. You know? And then Volpe, is, are you all right with that? Are you right, happy with exactly, that? I don't know. Exactly. Like, exactly. And you know. then Volpe is is what some something where the the um that that arc is a little bit lowered, right? But it's kind of played out over a little bit longer time frame. So his highs aren't necessarily going to be as high, but you're probably going to you potentially. I mean, I say probably you potentially could get a lot more good years, um, even if you're not getting a ton of great years from him, where yeah. Dela Cruz might give you some, like, really great years, but then it could fall off a cliff, like, really quickly. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting, interesting. But to, to move you along, um, who's the, the next person on your shortstop list? Yeah, well, do we be a little quicker with this one because we don't have to, like, you know, debate the whole theory of the universe with this guy. But um, so another one I wanted to highlight was is Ezekiel Tovar, mostly because he's in a great position right now to impact the Rockies. I know they're the Rockies, but it's getting to the point where it's like they have no other choice, uh, specifically with the Brendan Rodgers injury. Uh, he's their only good middle infielder now, like really on the whole roster. They just actually signed um, Mike Moustakas today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's of course they did, you know, like. <laughs> Right, yeah, I was, that makes sense. For I was talking to somebody in my home league and, and I was like, well, I don't really know who else. They, to your point, like there's not really anybody else in their middle infield that they had. Cause like Adele Amador is 19 and mm-hmm. hasn't played above like high A. So 
Like, who else? And his point was, his response was like, you could run Alan Trejo, and that probably be better than having Mike Moustakas at this point. And I was like, I, I can't uh-huh. disagree. Like, I can't. The, 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 you're, you're probably getting about the same output. Because right. it's like you could say, oh, he gets a Coors Field bump. Well, he was just in Great American Ballpark, mm-hmm. which is uh, on some days better than Coors, you know, with the with how they've leveled the playing field with the humidor and whatnot. So, um, you know, like, I, yeah, that's a fascinating middle infield situation. The Rockies are a dumpster fire. Um, but I like, what else are they going to do besides give them every day at bats, especially in the season where like, let's be real. They're not going to contend. Um, I think those at bats are going to be valuable for him um, to get used to not only get used to major league competition, right. But getting used to the difference between Coors and everywhere else. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a learning curve in itself. Um, you know, and, and, um, Bud Black, he's still man, the manager, right? That was, yeah. yeah. Okay. He was the one. He was the one who came out and said, uh, you know, like, oh, we might rest some of our better players at home, um, because I don't know why he was. He's talking something about the elevation, or I don't know. Um, and I, I don't think he. If that is the case, more power to him. Um, but I don't think Tovar is going to be included in that. You know, he's a young player who needs more at bats, who needs to feel the difference between home and away, and like kind of get used to that. Um, and so I, I think there's, it, I really don't see a reason why they wouldn't play him every day. Um, and as far as like the actual talent goes, you know, he's coming off a season last year where in 295 double A plate appearances, he put up a 153 WRC plus, uh, 13 homers, 17 stolen bases. And we don't know, um, in his very limited sample last year, he didn't exactly hit the cover off the ball. Um, so we don't know exactly how the power is going to play, but um, we don't need a whole lot, you know, if he hits a 12 to 15 homers, um, you know, maybe most of those are in Coors and plays every day, gets enough counting stats, um, takes advantage of the, of the new, um, you know, stolen base environment. Like he's impactful. You know, he, I, I have on here that he could be the league leader in plate appearances among rookies. Um, and that in itself is valuable. I think it's going to take a lot for them to demote him, um, and, and go with Alan Trejo and Mike Moustakis up the middle, you know? So I think that he kind of works through his slumps in the majors and um, has a lot of learning opportunities. And I think it's, I think it'll translate to some really solid fantasy value this year. Yeah. I'm, I was, I was looking to, to just kind of cross check the whole resting players piece. Cause I, I remember that coming up and I immediately ignored it cause it was dumb, but I, I just wanted to see, like what the what the base is there, so it seems like uh, but Black's logic is or has been um, resting starters in the um, beginning part of the season or early in the season, so they ha- could have a greater or a, a fresher team late in the season. Um, For what though? They're not making the playoffs. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's so it's funny you mentioned. Uh, you know, we all know that they're not making the playoffs, and I want to say, do the Rockies know that they're not making the playoffs? Because it seems like they're delusional we, if they don't. <laughs> well, based on what we've heard from their front office, thinking that their uh, team is comparable to the Padres, I think, in Man. in talent wise, <laughs> like I don't think we can write out delusion as as uh, a yeah. you know being a possibility there. So anyway, and just like everything that they've done for the last few years, like yeah. I think because there was a takeover, wasn't there? There was like a transition of, of front office or ownership or something a couple of years ago. 
Um, they 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 did clear out uh, and got rid of a lot of their scouts, which was that was a, a big talking point yeah. of the scouting department was like pillaged and like slash not pillaged but like slashed and burned, um and just a lot of weirdness uh, has come out in the last couple of years, especially like post the the COVID season about they're very even the other front office execs and I, and I can't remember whether this was an article from the Athletic or, or where, but they. They kind of had um, some sourcing from other front office execs saying, like, they're very odd to deal with. Like, they're just very black boxed about, like, very odd things that most other teams are just very, tra- like, more transparent about and they're very cagey about. And it it all strikes me all together, like, I'll just put it this way. It all strikes me as a organization because baseball teams, quite honestly, are no different than any other company. And it's just organization that's run by people that um really think that they're much smarter than what they really are and yeah. that's you like fa- you fail up right you keep yeah. you keep getting promoted you keep doing it until you suck at your yeah. job and i think yeah. that yeah you <laughs> like, fail up and then, you case, know if, if you know you got the right if you got the right uh you know bloodlines that also helps as well but mm-hmm. that gets us you know white Sox fan i know that all too well man that, <laughs> oh, oh my goodness yeah so, so yeah and uh one more thing with the rocky is just so rocky another signing that happened i think today or yesterday brad hand like of course they signed brad hand like cool good for brad hand hey, he's gonna get so man. many home runs <laughs> So, but anyway, we'll, we'll move on past the, uh, the Rockies section here. We'll move on. Um, so real quick, uh, by the time that this article or by the time that this episode, excuse me, is, is hitting your eardrums, the top 10 outfield prospects article that I'm writing will already have been published. Uh, and so there's a couple of guys that I want to highlight and that show up in that article. One is, um, from my beloved Baltimore Orioles, and that's Colton Cowser. Uh, another one is is Zach Veen, ironically from, or coincidentally from those same Colorado Rockies. I'm um, talking about Cowser. I think, um, you know, what what I find very interesting with him is he, I don't want to say completely came out of nowhere, but I I definitely know that he was drafted well over the slot that most people anticipated when when he was picked number five overall by the Orioles but he's really shown up well at every level I mean last year he 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 did the triple jump thing high a double a triple a gets themselves 510 at bats across the board and is 278 406 469 19 home runs 18 stolen bases he just does a little bit of everything um I think some people are assuming that this year he's going to see time I I'll be honest, I don't know if that's the case. And the reason why I'm hesitant on that is the Orioles have a lot of position players, uh, both major league-wise as well as prospects. And they don't have a ton of, like, delineated or, or like, well-defined roles for everybody yet. Like, you, it's pretty much like Adley's going to be catching. Cedric Mullen's going to be in center field. Mountcastle is going to be at first. And outside of that, it you know, who's going to be the permanent second baseman? There's like three guys that could be that. Is um, Gunner going to be their full-time shortstop eventually? Or is or are they going to keep him at third and have some, like, there's still a question there. Um, they're giving Kyle Stowers kind of a, a fuller run now. 
which is interesting to see because he's a lefty bat. So the whole wall ordeal in, in Oriole Park shouldn't affect him as much being a left-hander. Um, but he never really has gotten the chance to get a full run um, uh, from major league level. So it kind of looks like the DH right field position is kind of his to lose, but you still have Anthony Santander hanging around. Um, you got Austin Hayes still, but he's always, you know, on, on the cusp of getting pushed by somebody else. And then you look at just prospect wise in the outfield, you have Kowser. Um, uh, you also have uh, Heston Kerstad who came back from myocarditis. Right. <laughs> Let's run through this. Lost, lost uh, a year through COVID. Then gets diagnosed with myocarditis or around the same time. I, excuse me if I'm getting my timelines mixed up. Then has a hamstring injury, I want to say, last year. And then shows up in spring training and just like no days off. Like nothing's changed. And it's showing up like you would expect the number two overall prospect to show up. It's just taking him like three years. So like what do you do there? So I say all that to say none of these guys are in this article. Um, Colton Kowser is the person. Um, but I'm just curious to see with the Orioles, like how do they manage all this and what Kowser does? I think personally that he starts the season at AAA, and unless unless he really explodes and or any of those outfield prospect players really take a step down. So if we see Hayes with injuries, because he has had injuries in the past, um, if we see Hayes with injuries. Um, or just poor performance. Santander's had injuries, obviously, in the past, as well as been inconsistent um, in his performance. If Stowers doesn't fully step up, if those things in combination with Kowser really just running roughshod at AAA, then definitely I could see him getting that promotion early with the Orioles. Um, I think also the context of are the Orioles going to be in contention for a playoff spot like they were last year? And if they are, That'll be interesting to see how they manage all of their prospects because how much do you want to introduce young guys if you're really pushing for a playoff spot um, versus, you know, sticking with kind of what's been working for you so far. And if they aren't, if they fall out of contention early, which unfortunately I think is kind of probably the case because their pitching is still not really impressing me, um, then do they say, hey, let's open it up and kind of give free run. So we can really get ready for 2024, which has kind of always been where we've been targeting anyway. So Kowser's in that mix. That, that's my point behind all of that um, spiel is Kowser's in the mix. I, I'm interested in him. He's somebody that I still will hold off. Again, redraft folks, not really a name that you need to attack right now, but definitely in a dynasty context, um, he's somebody I'm interested in. Uh, if I have him, you're going to have to come up with a really good trade proposal to, to, to get me to let him go. And if I'm going after somebody uh, that has Kowser, you're paying a premium, just so you know. Like, you, you're going to need to pay up because this guy is moving up through the ranks. And I think he has, you know, sky's the limit type of potential. I think you see already 2020 is, uh, 2020 season, excuse me, is kind of nothing for him and as the lineup continues to get better for the Orioles you stick him kind of anywhere you want in that context and he's going to be able to show out you put him towards the top with his ability to steal bases he's going to be able to score runs you put him towards the middle give him some protection with Adley and Gunner and the like he's going to be able to knock in guys so uh yeah Kowser is somebody that I'm super excited about as an Orioles fan and from a fan, uh, fantasy standpoint in Dynasty 
um, he's one of the the higher risers that I can think of, especially in, in the outfield um, context. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have a lot to add there. I think he's going to be really good. And I think he'll get his chance this year, um, you know, at some point. But I think he's he's being, I've, in a couple drafts I've seen, he's being drafted pretty high, like almost, I think, reserves of like a 15-team league. Um, and that seems a little aggressive for me. But yeah, I, like you said, in Dynasty, like you're either hanging on to him or you're getting your your, your doors blown off with a great offer. So, yeah. 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 Uh, and the second guy, like we said, from the Colorado Rockies, Zach Veen. And it's funny because I was asking around on the Pitcherless um, server. And I was like, what am I missing with Veen and like him kind of falling in value? And I just kind of, ha- I'll be honest, I, I remember him getting drafted. And I just kind of assumed he was kind of just making his way. Nothing crazy, but nothing terrible as well. And then I looked and I was like, oh, the batting average strikeout rates have gone up. Okay. Um, and, and some people pointed out, like, yeah, he kind of seems to be less interesting than we thought he was going to be. And that seems to be why. And I was like, oh, OK. Um, but then putting it all together and looking at it in the context of this top 10 list. Age 20 season last year um, between high A and double A. So just under 500 at bats, 245 batting average, 340 OBP, 384 uh, with the slugging. So like. Yeah, not great. OBP, that's nice. But, like, slugging, not great. Batting average, not great. 12 home runs, 55 stolen bases. How much of that inflated rules, et cetera, okay. Um, but that's still, you know, pretty phenomenal to see. Uh, 84 runs, 67 RBI. But then you look at what he did in Arizona Fall League. And then you look at what he's been doing so far in the spring training. And then you start to wonder, hey, um, this guy got drafted out of high school for a reason. Like some some of these guys, especially when you think about um, the the prep ball guys, um, even the international guys, like these really young prospects, it really does take like two or three bites at the apple before everything clicks together, right? Before all those adjustments starts to take root, and it, and in the case of Vina, it just seems like he just needs as many reps as possible, right? So they gave him reps in Arizona Fall League, that helped. Giving him reps now in spring training, that helps. Um, you know, what does that mean overall? I'm interested in him. I probably, I'll, I'll be honest, the window to buy low on him is probably closing, like, as we speak from every, like, every spring training at bat and every spring training game he does well. It probably continues to close as people kind of remember, oh, yeah, I, I, I drafted him or I have him on my team for a reason. I don't necessarily want to give him up dirt cheap. Um, but you may still be able to go out there. And I would say it's an interesting buy low proposition because, um, Everything that we just talked about with the Rockies remains true. Like, dumpster fire, don't really know what's going on. Um, what's going on in the outfield? I mean, Charlie Blackman's 36. Uh, I Again, I have Jonathan Daza on one of my teams just because that team, that fantasy team is terrible and I just needed bats. But, like, Jonathan Daza does nothing. Um, he, he, he just has good batting average. That's about it. Um, and then you have Chris Bryant, who is he ever really going to play for the Colorado Rockies? like ever in a full season context i don't think so possibly but probably not so like the outfield is wide open and veen could definitely hit his way on now will he ever be a 300 hitter maybe not maybe he'll always be in that sort of 250 ish a great season 260 type of role but if you can give me that 330 340 batting average and even if it 
And I would even say this, even if the home runs have to get inflated because of cores or whatever, so that jumps from low teens into just high teens, but he's never really surpassing the, the 20 home run mark with any sort of consistently uh, consistency, excuse me. Uh, if you can give me 30 plus stolen bases, I that'll I, that I'll take that because stolen bases for me, I don't want to overpay, but when I can find them um, individually and not have to amass them and co you know, do this like uh, uh, extreme um, collection of stolen bases across nine different position players because I don't have one or two guys that I just know are going to go out and be league leaders when I can just get one of those guys and get them for possibly still relatively cheap. Yeah. That that's a little, for me, just talking about me, that's a little extra boost in the value. Like I'll take that. So again, is is Veen going to be a a world beater? No. Um, He's number seven on the the top 10 article. Um, I'm blanking on where he ended up in the top 100, but Again, you know, these outside of top 50 type guys, because I know he was outside of, I, I, he was um, close to being outside of the top 50. I think he may have been number 42, but again, I, I don't have it right in front of me. But um, these types of guys, they have one or two skills that make them special that I'm interested in investing in, especially if I can get it for cheap um, versus having to overpay for the higher name brand guys that are rising up. But again, that's me. Not saying that that's the right way. That's just how I look at it. Um, I did a lot of talking, Jake, Kowser or Veen. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I think on Veen specifically is a really interesting profile because, like, we talked, um, you know, last episode about like the dangers of Estuary Ruiz and like speed first guys, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like so. I think you could see how Veen might fall into that category, if not fully, at least kind of like be a little dangerously close. Um, you know, stealing a ton of bases, getting like double digits at homers in the minors. Um, and then, you know, we know now, like with Asturi Ruiz, like he can't, he doesn't hit the ball very hard. Um, I think Veen, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I think he's a bit safer there as far as like his just, you know, raw power. And, um, and that's, I think the difference is, it was really interesting. I noticed here, uh, that Fangraphs has, you know, their, their scouting report numbers here and on game power, they have him as a present 30 future 55 and raw power is a present 55 future 70. And that was surprising to me because, like, he hasn't shown that a ton. Um, you know, he had ISO uh, around 200 in his first season and then um, but closer to 170, uh, 160 last year. Um, and, you know, 15, 12 homers, like, he hasn't really shown out there. But, like, sometimes with these high school guys, it takes a minute to develop. And that kind of reminded me of another guy who had a similar situation that we've talked about before. Here's Kyle Tucker. Um, And so Kyle Tucker was drafted out of high school and in the low levels of the minors, he was only hitting like 10 home runs, stole a ton of bases. He stole 30 bases in single a. Um, And then after his, after two full seasons, he hit 25 homers. And then the next year it was 24 and then 34 in triple a after that. And then he hit the majors and killed it, you know? So it, like, sometimes it takes a couple of years to kind of build up. And if we're seeing Veen already at like a yeah, 12, 15, maybe he makes a jump this year to 20. Maybe he makes a jump again, if he can get to 20 to 25, you know, and we don't know. And now we know that Kyle Tucker hits the ball really hard. 
you know, and he makes really consistent contact. And so there's a really big spectrum there between Asturi Ruiz and Kyle Tucker. But I think the big thing is going to be if the power develops, you know, like Fangraphs as it should. Um, because like Kyle Tucker, Kyle Tucker's Fangraphs uh, grades from 2019, 50 present, 60 future in game power, and then 60 present in future in raw power. And so it's somewhere, some way along the line, it's really hard to go apples to apples here, but like they think you can say that they think that Veen has more power than him. If that's actually going to play out, I have no idea, but I could see a situation where he makes a huge jump if he can get to that power, especially in Coors. So um, I think for me, it's like I'm hesitant to buy in fully without knowing the extent of his like bad of all data. Um, but there's, I, I feel more confident in him being able to contribute in more categories and, make a bigger impact than someone like Ruiz who truly is speed first. I don't think that's necessarily the case for Bean. Yeah. So with that said, that covers the positional ranking articles that Jake and I have um, knocked out. So we're going to take another quick break here. And then when we come back, we're going to look at what was um, put out by the rest of the dynasty team, as far as their prospect rankings by position and talk through uh, their rankings, certain prospects that maybe we agree or disagree on. Um, so stay with us after this jump. Okay, so we're back, and like I said, we're going to be talking through the rest of the Pitcherless Dynasty team's uh, positional prospect rankings. Um, so these articles are a combination of the ranks contributed um, by, and definitely uh, help me out here, Jake. It was yourself, uh, Matt Heckman, Chris Clegg, of course, Will and uh, Will, yep, Will Garofalo. Okay, so it was those four. Um, so obviously there's there's some guys that maybe left off overall that um you know individually may have been ranked higher or lower. Um, but again, the whole point was to to build some sort of consensus and coming up with these. So um, we're just gonna go kind of go lightning around, so it won't necessarily be as in depth as we talked through earlier. Um, but sort of lightning round style with um starting with the first baseman articles that um, Will wrote. So, Jake, who's your guy from that first baseman article that you're either higher or lower on? Yeah, I think for this one, uh, John can see Noel is low. I, I think he should be a little lower. Now, first base is not very deep as far as prospects go. Usually you see some more like prop pop-up guys at that position. And right now there's, I think it's like really solid, like five or six deep, but then it gets a little hairy. Um, even with that being said, I think it's really going to be tough for Noel to um, make a huge impact because I think we mentioned those these two names earlier, but I think he reminds me a little too much of like Miguel Sano and Fran Mil Reyes, where you have a ton of raw power, but he can't get to it consistently. Um, and he did make strides in his approach um, going from high A to double A last year but i don't quite believe in it because you look at like the strikeout rate and walk rates like they go there's a lot of up and down a lot of roller coaster action throughout his time in the minors and it seems like every time he like makes a stride forward he kind of takes a takes a step back and you know i think right now especially when you're looking at someone who like does he doesn't really fit the mold of a guardians prospect um doesn't really have a place to play they have two uh first baseman right now uh naylor is young i think he's 25 or so um and bell is about i think his age 30 season going into so like they have two first basemen now they have jose ramirez who isn't going anywhere anytime soon 
and DH, which would be one of the other first basemen, right? And so it's like maybe Bell leaves at some point, um, but Bell has an elite plate play, play approach, and I just don't see where he where Noel fits in or how he you know is consistent enough to like be impactful. Oh well, yeah, so I think uh, it's interesting because I had Noel um, rostered for a little bit in my home league, and then I I did end up trading him uh, to try to boost um, my team, and I was kind of trading based on that power um, profile that you're talking about. But yeah, that that was always kind of my question of how long am I going to hang on to him, um, and what does this actually end up looking like? And it's interesting that you talked about Sano and and uh, Reyes because I think. Um, Noel possibly is a better hit, just hitter than to know is, was, however you want to look at that. Um, but yeah, I, I think the lack of defensive position, um, they tried him in the outfield. It wasn't horrible, but I don't think it's ideally where they want to go. And I see that you had the note here too, that like, the, it's not really the profile that Cleveland tends to, um, prefer and, and really value as well, which is always a, uh, interesting thing to to keep in mind um so yeah so i i can't say that i disagree on, on noel being possibly lower my person and i'm sure i'm going to get a bunch of people angry about this but i gotta say it and it's matt mervis i i just never I, I everything that he did awesome you know undrafted free agent comes in blows the doors off the miners like that i can't take that away from him um but also there's kind of a reason I use an undrafted free agent. Now, yes, like some of that was with um, the, the the COVID year and all that, but there's no track record that he has with what he's done previously. We look at where he was at Duke or anything of that nature. Um, I don't know that the organization trusts him because obviously they, they signed Mancini and then they go and sign Hosmer. So they're like actively blocking him from being able to take the first base position. So that's, you know, and, and I'm not saying that that's, the right move, but it is a move that has been made. And so to me, that kind of indicates something about what's going on with how organization values their prospect. Um, but at the same time, it's not, it's not that he's not a good ball player. He's always had elite plate discipline. He had a 9% swing and strike um, uh, rate last, last year and a 10% walk rate in the two years that he's been uh, a pro uh, overall. So the plate discipline is there. Uh, so therefore I think he's going to be valued, especially in, in um, on base leagues to an extent, but the idea that he's just going to like come in, be a 25 homer first baseman with these added skills. I just, I don't see it. I'm He's kind of like a Esther Ruiz to me. Like I understand the unicornness and like wanting to believe in magic, but I got to believe in kind of the underlying data as well. And a lot of that is leading me to believe that, he he's he's a part-time guy at best you know utility bat at best and i'm going to value him accordingly um so yeah i would i would bring mervis i don't I, i'll be honest and and this is no no shot at will or anything of that nature i haven't looked at um the first baseman as they racked up and and i didn't do a ranking so i didn't contribute to the consensus at all so i have to be completely transparent on that i don't know that i would have matt mervis on my list whatsoever that's me though that, that's my outlook. Um, moving quickly into third base. Um, so uh, Matt Heckman did the third base article. Um, my guy that I'm going to say, I, 
we talked about him before, and I think at this point he's kind of helping me make my argument. I think he should be the number one third base prospect and arguably maybe the top prospect overall, you could say, and that's going to be Jordan Walker. Um, why him over Gunnar Henderson? I think uh, there's still questions about Henderson being able to hit left-handers. So small sample size, I know, but at the major league level, only hit 130 off of lefties and 26 uh, plate appearances. That's going to be something he has to answer for. Haven't seen any holes in Walker's game yet. Uh, he could be actually, I could have put him in my top 10 for outfield prospects because he's started to make that conversion and he's shown up quite well. I mean, we talked about it earlier in the pod. Um, do you want him to be your everyday center fielder? Maybe not, but like, could he be? I think he could. I think he's athletic enough. He definitely has the arm. Um, you could put him at any three outfield spots and he would show up quite well along with his ability to hit also his ability to run. So I, I think, um, you know, Henderson obviously has a leg up because he's already being slotted into the everyday lineup in Baltimore. And we talked about where does Walker fit and how is he going to fit? But um, I think Walker similar to another Walker and that being Larry and just being able to put up consistently 20 home run, 15 plus stolen base type seasons year over year with high average and high OBPs. Just, I think he can just do that over and over again. So again, if you're talking about comparing Jordan Walker and Gunnar Henderson and sort of that seven year run, like their peaks and what they look like um, right now, I think Jordan Walker just gives you a little bit higher peak uh, uh, than Henderson does. But I, I mean, that's nitpicking, but that's the nit that I'm picking. I think Walker is the number one third base prospect. Yeah, because, you know, like we're talking about with Ellie De La Cruz, like with the peaks and the valleys, like Jordan Walker doesn't necessarily have the bottom out, you know, like even though he hits the ball hard, just as just as hard as Ellie, if not probably more harder than Ellie does, um, he doesn't have that kind of like that, honestly, that ability to strike out 30% of the time, you know, like he will probably carry about league average strikeout rates, which like, like we said, when you're talking about Judge or Stanton, the guys that like, are have the most success that also hit the ball the hardest like i think walker could become one of those guys in that kind of category and um you know so i think that he's gonna have those peaks and i don't think the valleys are gonna be nearly as deep as someone who you know someone who hits the ball as hard as he does yeah and i think with henderson you know if the lefties become any sort of issue for him like even if it doesn't it doesn't have to be him hitting 130 all the time again that's a super small sample i, I definitely understand but if he's a sub 200 hitter against lefties that's a hole it, it may not be the biggest hole if he crushes everybody else but that's still a hole that's still a place to exploit that i don't see walker currently having or necessarily having in the future so that's me who's your guy or guys from third base yeah, so third base is kind of tough because I mostly agree with the rankings. I think um, I'm coming around to Jordan Walker being better than or higher than than, than Gunner. Um, but like after that, it's Miguel Vargas, then Josh Young, Curtis Mead. That all sounds about right. Brett Beatty. Um, I don't know why I don't love him as much as everyone else, but I still can't really argue with him there. Um, then Junior Caminero, Cam Collier, Christian Encarnacion Strand, and Kobe Mayo. Um, that's, I think that's a solid list. I don't think there's a lot, you know, maybe I think Collier has a higher ceiling, uh, maybe than Beatty, you know, but I, as of right now, Collier is still 18, you know, so I can't really put him up higher than Beatty. Who's about to hit the majors and we've already seen him in the majors have good, bad, ball data, whatever. Right. Um, so I think it's a solid list. Um, I think there's a couple guys that could, 
um, kind of find their way in this list this time next year that I want to talk about real quick. Um, I've already talked all, all about Casey Smith. Everyone knows how much I love Casey Smith. Mm-hmm. Casey Casey Smith. Love him so much. He can't even can't even just get it out. Just Casey Casey Schmidt. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> you get too excited. Um, but yeah, I think he'll he won't be on prospect lists uh, very long. I think he'll get enough plate appearances this year to lose that eligibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that you know. I think he's going to, uh, he has, I think, a better impact this year than some of the guys at the, at the bottom of the list. And then someone else I wanted to talk about was uh, James Triantos of the Cubs. Um, he is currently 20 years old, and he's already shown a good plate approach, you know, doesn't strike out a whole lot, really solid speed, and he has some power that could develop. Um, and I think that this year could be a breakout season for him, and if it is, I think that he could climb super high in third base rankings. You know, I think this time next year he could be, yeah, maybe five or six, you know, if he um, has a good year, if he gets a double A and shows, you know, keeps with the good, with a good approach and maybe hits, has some more power. Um, yeah. I think he'll be one to, to uh, take a big step forward this year. Yeah. I was a, a big Triantos guy. He was going to be my number one draft pick in 2021 FYPD from where I was drafting at. And then I got sniped like two picks before and I had to like quote unquote settle for, Colson Montgomery, I'm actually fine with that right now, the way things are going. Um, but I don't disagree with you. Like, Triantos is still interesting to me. And I could see both. It's actually, it's actually funny because I think they actually compare, Triantos and Montgomery actually compare pretty well in the sense of um, neither one of them are third base by sort of uh, design or, or by, you know, past history, but that's probably where they're going to end up. And I think as hitters, there's the, the power is the question of of is that that that's going to be what differentiates them from being kind of good to great is if they're able to develop power behind their games consistently then that really jumps them up i think if they don't and they kind of stick in that doubles hitters range that they are right now and that becomes who they are i think they're good but but not necessarily um great third base prospects so um yeah, I, I agree. Trantos is, is a guy that I'm still uh, invested in just watching how he develops. Uh, moving into catchers, uh, your guy is actually somebody that I had been watching for quite some time, and I just moved off of him, but I'm still interested in seeing what happens with him. Talk about your guy. Yeah, so uh, interested to see more about why you moved off of him. My guy is uh, Yaner Diaz. And, you know, I think for me right now, it's all about opportunity um, and co- also consistency. He's been surprisingly consistent in single A. He had a 122 WRC plus double A, a 121 and triple A 121. Uh, all of them, all sample sizes between 220 and 270 play appearances right about. Um, yeah, I mean, that's about as consistent as you can get. Um, he has some good power he's gotten to it in games he hit 25 yeah 25 homers last year in the minor in double a AA and triple a um and he doesn't strike out he hasn't carried a strikeout rate north of 17.8 percent in the minors um and you know nine plate appearances in the majors last year so you can't really take anything from that but he did make it to the majors and you know right now looking at the houston astros depth chart um martin maldonado is old uh and hasn't been very good offensively for a while you know even at his peak he wasn't too great he's always just been the defense you know but yeah, he's three maldonado is 36 
you know, and Corey Lee, they have him and roster resource currently has Corey Lee as the backup, you know, but you know, he hasn't really done a whole lot to live up to his first round draft pick status, you know? Um, and he hasn't, I don't think he's really kind of like stepped up offensively. And I think Yander Diaz can, uh, can do that. Um, but yeah, and then also like Diaz has played games uh, off of catcher too. He played 36 games at first base last year, eight in the outfield, um, and then 52 at catcher. So, and looking at, you know, the other spots in, in Houston's lineup where he could be a backup, um, you know, Jose Abreu and Martin, or Jose Abreu and Michael Brantley are both above 35 years old. And so even if they don't get injured, I'm sure they're going to have more often, you know, rest days than like someone who's in their prime age wise. Right. So I think there's going to be some opportunities to fill in at DH. There's going to be some opportunities to fill in maybe at first base. Um, and then as like, I think he could win the job as the backup catcher too. So I like him for the opportunity for the consistency that he's shown at the minor leagues. And, you know, if you're rostering him in a catcher spot, I think that he could be, um, a pretty solid value. Uh, you don't need him to like completely blow the doors off. You just need him to be like pretty consistent at bats and like hold his own, you know, and I think that he has a really good shot to do that and be pretty valuable. Yeah. Uh, I, it's not so much that I disagree. I think the, the Corey Lee pieces is, is what, um, that, and also just my roster construction, I just needed to, to free up a spot. Um, I forget who I, I dropped him for, but I was freeing up a spot for somebody that just had, um, I believe just some, some better upside in, in my opinion, um, but I, I, I'm not off of him as a player. I think the Corey Lee piece of it, though, is like every time that I think Lee is like, you know, uh, he, he's done for and like this is over uh, because of an injury, because of just poor performance, whatever. And then he just, hit, you know, he hits a stride. So even now in spring training, it's like now he's starting to hit some home runs. Now he's starting to look a little bit more like the guy that they thought he was going to be um, a couple years ago. But yeah, Lee's had to battle, you know, through injuries and, and you know, all sorts of different stuff there. Um, and like I said, just not having consistent performance. And I don't think that the um, the Astros are just ready to give up on him as of yet and, and uh, have Diaz circumvent him as far as the, um, the heir apparent, so to speak, uh, to Maldonado. Um, quite honestly, I could see Diaz, especially with the way he plays, he could be one of those trade ships that um the Astros like to to use to continue to get better um I could see him getting dealt to a team that is in need of getting younger um whether it be behind the plate or just in general in the lineup uh for you know veteran pitcher or something of that nature that the Astros are looking for um so I mean I, I again I don't disagree that Diaz is somebody of interest I think he's definitely a should be a cheap ad for you in dynasty I would say he's probably more of a deep dynasty guy right now 15 plus uh leagues not, not anything that you need to be going after in the the shallow um leagues but um yeah i i i could definitely see pushing him up higher uh just based on what he's already done my guy i think should be much higher than what he is um and that's harry ford um i think looking at the list ford has a better offensive profile than austin wells does and 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 so he was he was behind Wells. I think he's pretty much on the same path as um, Bo Naylor is. He's not at the same level, but he's also three years younger than Naylor. And I think they have similar kind of floors. I think Ford is the athleticism we know of. We know about you know some attempts or some hints at least that 
moving him from behind catcher to some other places. But, you know, to me, what he does as far as uh, being such an excellent base runner, having a decent pop, even though it's not great, but I think it's still developing, quite honestly, with his bat, um, bat-to-ball skills and having, for being 20 years old, um, some pretty advanced plate skills overall and playing in, you know, uh, something that I've noticed with Seattle prospects that Seattle, um, who else is in that league? That low a West league, that California league is pretty dang competitive. When you look at the talent that's around pitching and hitting wise, if you ever get a chance to watch those games, those have like a lot of good young prospects to pay attention to. So, you know, yeah, he's only 20. Yeah. It's only low a, and then him getting into high a, but he's, he's, shown out pretty well and i think ford could end up being a top prospect where he's going to end up playing i don't know you know is it going to be catching is it going to be second is it going to be left field or something of that nature i don't know but he's going to be a a really top-notch hitter very productive um i had him for a quick second actually i've had him twice i actually was looking through history i've had him on my my roster two separate times and traded him both times and both times i'm like why did i do that again like a month after I'm like, why did I trade him? Um, and I think this last time I, I'm really going to be kicking myself because I think in, in, you know, t- by 2025, 2026 at the latest, he's really going to be quite impressive. So, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's how I feel about Ford. I think he's, he's really going to be a force to be reckoned with. So with that being said, that's uh, our look at the um, positional rankings that we've put out from the dynasty team at pitcher list. Um, again, by the time you're hearing this, the top outfield, the top 10 outfielders article will be published as of Monday, March 6th. Uh, as always, I want to remind listeners that you can find this podcast and all of our picture list pods on the picture list network podcast page. They're all available in the podcast section of picture list for you to find, listen, and subscribe. You can of course find me, um, on Twitter at inside fastball, capital I, capital F. And you can find me on Twitter at Jake Mache, M-A-I-S-H. And with that, I hope you all enjoy the rest of your day.